This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Tamara. Happy New Year. I hope your holidays were restful and that so far 2023 has been good to you. This week, we're going to take you to Indonesia, where about a month ago, the government passed a new criminal code. It's not in effect yet, but the changes that come with it are transformative, and they take the country in a much more socially conservative direction. Among the many changes in the new criminal code, the ones that have gotten the most attention are the bans on extramarital sex and living together if you're not married. Australian travellers are thinking twice about venturing to Bali after the Indonesian government passed draconian new laws. Sex outside marriage. The governor of Bali has come out and reassured tourists that they don't need to worry and that this would really only affect locals. But while this may not end up being a big deal for tourists, for Indonesians, the consequences are very real. And there are certain populations in the country that have even more of a reason to be worried, like the LGBTQ community, an already vulnerable group that's been dealing with increased hostility in recent years. Indonesian religious police in Banda Aceh, Sumatra, caned two men for gay sex on Tuesday with hooded men inflicting 82 lashes on each of them. Up to 1,000 people, many filming with smartphones, watched as the two men received the lashes on the race platform at the mosque. Human rights advocates worry that because same-sex marriage is illegal in Indonesia, the bans on extramarital sex and cohabitation outside of marriage would leave LGBTQ people more vulnerable to prosecution and make it even harder for them to live their lives out in the open. If you look at Indonesia's history, this is a pretty major shift. This is a country of thousands of islands and hundreds of ethnic and religious groups, and it's been known for its pluralism. But for the last few decades, the country's politics have been shaped by the fight between those who believe Indonesia should be more secular and those who believe religion should play a bigger role, with the influence of hardline Islamists growing in recent years. Today on the show, we're going to hear about the fears and concerns around this new criminal code and try to understand how Indonesia's complex and fascinating history led to its creation. I'm Tamara Kandakar, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. My first guest today is Dede Utamo, a longtime Indonesian LGBT rights activist and founder of the group Gaia Nusantara. Hi, Dede. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really happy to talk to you. Hi. Happy to talk to you, too. (laughs) So, Dede, I was hoping we could start by just getting to know you a little bit, because 
you're an activist, you've lived through a lot of change in Indonesia, and you have a very specific perspective on this this criminal code. So we'll talk about the code in a bit, but I wonder if you can tell me about growing up in Indonesia to start with, when did you first come to understand your own sexual orientation? And from there, how openly were you able to live in the country as a gay man? Well, I realized I liked other men, other boys, um, maybe when I was 11, 12, 13, you know, uh, when I was entering puberty. Didn't know what it was called, but soon enough I knew it was called homosexuality. As a background, I was pretty bookish as a, as a child, uh, spent mostly at home reading whatever I could read. <laughs> and, and the magazines... Um, I mean, popular magazines from time to time would uh, say uh, negative things about homosexuality, but I, w- I, I didn't take it to heart and I didn't know it was me, uh, you know, or it was my uh, sexuality. And so there was no violence from the community, not even from my schoolmates. Uh, they actually noticed my uh, kind of extra feminine behavior. Uh, they teased me, but nothing, nothing, nothing violent. Do you remember at the time how people would talk about queer and trans people and like how visible was the community as you were growing up? I guess we could, we got to start with trans people all, you know, uh, gender variant people. They were uh, at least in traditional theater. Uh, my parents, you know, when I was probably as young as 10 or nine, I would take me to these theater performances. <laughs> And the next morning, my mother would just ask, you know, who was the most beautiful of those actors? They were men. They were men dressed as women. Uh, Some probably were trans in their uh, daily lives. Others were just, you know, artists. And uh, that was just the breakfast conversation the next day. So no, no, no transphobia. And I suppose now with the vocabulary, I could see there were probably people who we would now call trans men but not so violently hateful like the way things are now. What about now then? What do we know about the attitudes that Indonesians have towards LGBTQ plus people? Well, if you look at social media, the majority is uh, kind of aping in a way their clerics, both Muslim and Christian, and also the government. Uh, these are deviant people, sinners, uh, influence from the West. The worst, of course, we should get rid of them. Uh, it's a tribal mentality. I know if we have them amongst us, we will have landslides, we will have floods, we will have earthquakes. It's a simplistic way of demonizing uh, LGBT people. Just moving away from the the public attitudes, I I wonder if we can talk about sort of the persecution that uh, LGBT people face from the government and police. So even though homosexuality is not illegal in Indonesia, except for in the province of Aceh, there have been stories of police targeting members of the queer community in the last few years. Can you just give us an example of one of those incidents? Maybe one worst case example. 
a group of friends were in one of their apartments um, in Jakarta. This is a middle-class apartment. So, you know, uh, and suddenly there was a group of police, men and women. And they always bring in TV crew because, you know, they, they, they plan this thing. And, and of course, you know, they cannot prosecute them on being homosexual, right, on being gay. So they said, you know, oh, do you have drugs? Police arrested 56 men from an apartment in Kuningan area, South Jakarta. The arrest occurred early Saturday morning, yesterday. They were raided for allegedly throwing same-sex parties. Fortunately, they had, didn't have drugs in the apartment. Do you have pornography in your uh, smartphones? So those would be reason enough to, to prosecute, which have been used by, uh, in, in other raids, by the way. Thankfully, everybody was clothed. It was not a sex party, by the way. It was not an orgy. But, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's that fear, and which made some people want to get asylum. In Canada, Canada is, uh, is one country that is kind of uh, preferred. Uh, and I think there, was, there have been some successes. Uh, but if you've been through something like that, you, you want to go away. So coming back to the new criminal code, it makes sex outside of marriage or living with someone outside of marriage illegal, punishable by jail time. What is it that makes LGBTQ plus people especially vulnerable under this new criminal code? So according to some human rights activists and some law professors, since LGBTQ people cannot marry uh, marriage equality is not in the in the in, in Indonesian law. Technically, people like me are outside marriage. So let's say I have a spiteful sister or brother, uh, and report me. Uh, I could get arrested. You see, the detail of this is this: police has to accept, has to process any complaints, and then the debate will happen in court. That's what uh, these people say. You know, some analysts say. Because this is like a complaints-based law, mm-hmm. it's likely that a lot of cases, this is not going to get enforced. It's only going get, to get enforced if somebody complains. And, you know, how likely mm-hmm. is that? It's happened. Even now. Okay. But then, uh, oh, okay, maybe I should go to, to Article 2 in the Criminal Code, which talks about living law in the community. So whatever is not mentioned in this code can be prosecuted if there is living law against that kind of behavior in the community. And living law, just to be clear, what what is that exactly? It's actually community values. So so in the case of uh, LGBT people, if you happen to be living in a province or in an area that's like really conservative, you're kind of screwed because this new criminal code allows that area to be governed by local officials, right? Yes. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. 
infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. Granted, with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. To understand how this all happened, my next guest says you can go all the way back to the Cold War and the ousting of the first president of Indonesia, Sukarno. This is Andreas Harsono. He covers Indonesia for Human Rights Watch, and he's the author of Race, Islam, and Power, a book about the rise of ethnic and religious violence in the country. Uh, in 1965, President Sukarno was topple in a creeping coup in which one million uh, communists who were assumed to be his supporter were killed. Later, the Indonesian Communist Party, then the third largest communist party in the world, was banned. Thus, in terms of political spectrum, one wing of the spectrum, the left one, was crippled, was cut off. And this country is, is going more to the right. Many scholars agree with Andreas that the mass killing and crippling of the left in Indonesia was the beginning of the country heading in this direction. After Sukarno was ousted, we saw the rise of General Suharto, who would go on to serve as Indonesia's second president for over 30 years. He became known as a brutal and corrupt dictator. It was around the beginning of his dictatorship that the country started to try and revise its criminal code, a relic of the Dutch colonial era. Over the years, various governments had said that they wanted to decolonize the laws they'd inherited. But until now, there had never been much substantial change. The main reason, I guess also the strongest, for the political parties, the government to change the criminal code is it should be based on so-called our values. As if, as if, one, the old that's made was not based on values in Indonesia. And second, as if Indonesia's so-called values are different from the global values. So one thing that might surprise people is that these changes that the new criminal code would bring in, as extreme as they might sound to people outside of Indonesia, they're actually a middle ground, right? The government has defended the changes as an effective compromise. It's not easy for a multicultural and multi-ethnic country to make a criminal law code that can accommodate all interests. On the other hand, the national criminal material in the criminal code must regulate the balance between public or state and individual interest. This criminal code is considered a political compromise by both sides because there were hardline Islamist parties that were actually calling for an outright ban on homosexuality. And the government, which is a coalition made up mostly of secular nationalist parties, they did this to appease them. So what does that tell us then about the political influence of Islamists in the country? The influence of Islamists 
in Indonesia is growing. It grows very significantly over the last two decades after the fall of Soeharto. Indicator, we have more than 700 so-called Sharia-inspired regulation over the last 20 years. They are discriminating gender minorities, sexual minorities, as well as religious minorities. But you can argue, didn't it happen in the first 50 years of Indonesia independence before Suharto? Yes, it happened. But remember that both President Suharto and President Sukarno, the previous two presidents, were authoritarian leaders, more or less nationalist, secular. So they suppressed the Islamism. But still, over those two presidential period, there were Sharia-inspired, Islamic-driven regulations, such as the marriage law, 1975, that tolerated uh, polygamy with some permit, with some safeguard. But they did it even before these two decades. So this all happened even though the Suharto dictatorship suppressed these Islamists. And then what happened after the fall of Suharto? How did they end up gaining so much influence? After the fall of Suharto, after the fall of authoritarian Suharto regime, of course, the playing field is more or less open. Indonesia becoming illiberal democracy, not a liberal democracy. And like Everyone else, Islamist party also used this opening to promote, you know, Islamic Sharia, to promote mandatory hijab, to promote early marriage, Indonesia without dating, criminalizing sex outside of marriage, including criminalizing homosexuality. That's the new criminal code. Right. And is there something that these hardline Islamist organizations or even these political parties are doing to draw people in? How are they appealing to the public? Because Islamist organization, Muslim organization, they are effective in campaigning uh, their agendas. It is easy to say that according to Islam, woman wearing a hijab is in Indonesia tiang agama, the pillar of the religion difficult to argue against that. And according to Islam, this, according to Islam, that. Meanwhile, Nationalist Secularist Party, they are struggling to compete with Islamist parties in putting forward their respective agendas. The Nationalist Party, they are using budget, they use programs that are complicated, that are difficult for voters to understand. Indonesia is a Muslim-majority country, but there are obviously a lot of moderate Muslims who are having also having to deal with the consequences of, of this, right? So I'm just wondering, could you give us a sense of how this affects moderate Muslims and also like how fringe are these hardline ideas and how much support do they actually have among the public? Very good questions. Actually, in every election... Uh, Islamic parties, Islamic parties, not only Islamists, but Muslim-based parties, they never overcome 
the percentage of the nationalist parties, meaning Islamist parties are always uh, less than even 40%, 30% of the total vote. Uh, but the thing is, again, it is not only a matter of political parties. There are Indonesian ulama uh, council and many other Muslim organizations. And each of them has their own internal struggle. And again, within this so-called moderate Islamic organization, there are also struggles between the hardliners and between the more progressive and also those in between. According to Abdurrahman Wahid, a former president, himself a great Muslim scholar, one of the greatest in Indonesia, uh, according to him, the progressive are only island in the ocean of Islamic hardliners in Indonesia. Mm. There is an election coming up in 2024. So do you think that that was part of the government's calculation when they made this compromise with, with the hardliners on this, this criminal code? Oh, yes, of course. 2023 is a political year because... February 2024, only 13 months from now, we are going to have a huge election, presidential, parliament, local parliament, governor, uh, region, and many others. Thus, not supporting this toxic article in the criminal code could be used as a weapon. Oh, these are the ruling coalition that supported, let's say, extramarital sex. So it is, it is, it is a part of this political calculation, sadly. And Andreas, before we go, I was wondering, what are your biggest concerns with the criminal code? With our other guests, we talked about how the morality clauses are going to affect the LGBT community in particular, but what other changes are on your mind right now? Oh, all front. I'm concerned about press freedom. I'm concerned about LGBT people. I'm concerned about women, especially, that might be that are more easier to be targeted with the cohabitation or extramarital sex article. And last but not the least, religious minorities, whether they are non-Muslim minorities or non-Sunni minorities, as well as ethnic local religion. I'm, I'm worried with all of these minorities. The UN also expressing concerns that the revised laws could contravene the country's international human rights obligations. Rules that have come under the fiercest fire, bans on insulting the president, the staging of protests and the airing of any view that runs counter to state ideology. These protesters are arguing the new criminal code is a setback for democracy. The government should focus on fulfilling people's civil rights, the economy and culture, such as job vacancies, health care, etc. They should have passed laws relating to that. Instead, they passed a law that was not democratic, controls our private lives and does not take care of public matters. It is a setback for our country, which had fought for reform, and now we are moving backwards. The criminal code won't come into effect for another three years. And activists like Dede Utimo, who we heard from earlier, have already started working to challenge it. And they're hoping they can turn things around before then. 
I suppose in, in, in my more optimistic or hopeful mood, uh, I would say, you know, as I said, you know, the constitutional court has been used before. Street protests have actually uh, worked before. We have always fought. Uh, it's too bad we always have to fight all the time, but I guess everybody in any country have, has to fight uh, for the truth, for, the, for justice. And, you know, we are an unfinished nation. So let's work on finishing it so that everybody's, you know, well and happy. It's a tall order for now, but uh, it seems to be so in many parts of the world, you know. <laughs> Before we go today, I want to spend our last few moments in Brazil, where the year started off with the mourning of the death of a legend. That's the sound of the casket of Brazilian soccer star Pele being driven on a fire truck through the streets of Santos as part of his funeral procession. Around 200,000 people lined up in the burning sun outside the Vila Belmiro Stadium to attend his 24-hour wake. That's where he'd played for much of his career. Newly inaugurated president Lula da Silva was there. He called Pele incomparable as a soccer player and as a human being. Mourners cried kissed the stadium ground, and chanted in celebration of his life. After 24 hours there, the hearse was taken to his mother's house, and then to a cemetery where his family held a private funeral. Pele, known by many as King, is the one and only player to ever win three World Cups and was in many ways Brazil's ambassador to the world. Pele was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2021 and died last Thursday. He was 82. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. It only takes a second and it really helps new listeners discover the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.